0: After the Israelites left Egypt, on the very day they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob, what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then, out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. Amen. Well, Israel have arrived at the mountain of God, Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. And this is, a, in a, a very real sense, the culmination uh, of Exodus. This is the destination to which Israel is heading. Yes, I know we're going to the the promised land, but the entry into Canaan uh, takes place after the Pentateuch, the book of Joshua. And as far as Exodus, uh, this is the highlight. This is the terminus. This is uh, the, the point to which everything is flowing. I Remember what God said to Moses when he met him at the burning bush, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you, When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. And so that was really the point of the Exodus. When Moses uh, challenged Pharaoh uh, with God's command, uh, set my people free that they might worship me. When he uh, insisted that the people be allowed to make a three-day journey that they might go out and worship God. Uh, It was not pretense. Uh, This really was the, the purpose of going out uh, into the, uh, the, the the wilderness, yes, they were to get their freedom, but uh, it was also that this ragtag bunch of individuals would be forged into a new nation under God, welded together by this uh, instrument called the covenant covenant, which would make them uh, a people under God. Now we'll take some time to think about the whole idea of covenant later on. Uh, But suffice to say that a covenant is an agreement in which an overlord spells out the relationship that he has to his people and stipulates the ways in which they are to relate to him. It's not a compact uh, which uh, is to say that it tells uh, someone how they can earn a relationship with someone else. It confirms a certain status and says, this is who you are, and now this is how you are to behave in that status, in that relationship. And these few verses, as we're going to see tonight, hopefully are crucially important for us to understand the relationship that the believer has to the commandments, the relationship that the believer has to the law of God. Where is the mountain? Where are we talking about? Well, it's not uh, known with complete certainty. Uh, in Galatians 4.25, for example, uh, Paul speaks about Mount Sinai, which is in, in Arabia, And so some scholars have thought that, well, it was uh, a mountain on the Gulf of Aqaba in Arabia. But in Paul's day, Arabia was a a Roman region, and it included not only Arabia, but the Sinai Peninsula. And tradition has Mount Sinai deep in the Sinai Peninsula, deep south in the Sinai Peninsula. And if you see some of the the old etchings of Mount Sinai, uh, it is located at what's called... Uh, today uh, the well there's a, a monastery St Catherine's Monastery on it uh, the name that the uh, nomads gave to it was the, the mountain of Moses and there's a long standing traditional that uh, this place, Jebel Musa uh, an 8000 foot mountain uh, is the uh, traditional sighting of uh, Mount Sinai and Although we can't be certain exactly that that's where it was, if, as seems likely, uh, Mount Sinai was deep in the Sinai Peninsula, then an interesting fact emerges, and that is that the Israelites are now further away from the Promised Land than they were when they were in Egypt. Isn't that strange? They have gone in a tortuous direction. Remember earlier on... uh, we were told in the narrative that they didn't go along the way of the sea which would have been uh, heavily fortified but God took them uh, south south. and now they're deep into Sinai and not only that but they've experienced some very real challenges on the way Uh, they've been tested almost to the limit uh, by scarcity of food, scarcity of water and by military attack from the Amalekites there have been times when They thought to themselves, it was far, far better for us back in Egypt. Of course, it was a delusion. God was exposing uh, the state of their hearts by the heat situations into which he brought them. If you like, their sin was being uncovered. They were going to come now to meet with God as a people uh, who were were no longer uh, in a delusory state about their sinfulness, their sin had been brought to the surface. And hey, that is the way it is with us in the Christian life, is it not? We believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and we receive forgiveness for sins and then sometimes our life seems to simply go in the very opposite direction we'd hoped for. Things become incredibly difficult and we meet with things which show just how deep-seated our sin is the sinful heart that is being changed the guilt has been forgiven but we still have this sinful nature and it's a lot worse than we ever thought and in the early days of the christian life that can be quite a rude awakening john newton uh, wrote a, a lovely poem which has been put to music uh, i asked the lord and this is how it goes i asked the lord that i might grow in faith and love and every grace Might more of his salvation know And seek more earnestly his face Twas he who taught me thus to pray And he I trust has answered prayer But it has been in such a way That almost drove me to despair I hoped that in some favoured hour At once he'd answer my request And by his love's constraining power Subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart. And let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe. Crossed all the fair designs I schemed. Cast out my feelings. Laid me low. Lord! Why is this a trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way the Lord replied. I answered prayer for grace and faith. So we have people now, people who are redeemed, people who are bought at a price. Remember the sacrificial lambs are all teaching about the costliness of redemption. They've been brought out of Egypt. Uh, Delivered and now chastened by the exposure of their own hearts and now in a place where they're ready to receive God's commandments. And Moses, as the mediator between uh, God and his people, is called up to the mountain and is given words to say to the people. And they're hugely significant words. Uh, We're just looking at uh, words which are contained in in three verses, two verses, in fact. But they're hugely significant. Moses is called up the mountain with these words to give to the people. He goes down again and he's back up. So this is a crucial uh, step uh, in the the progress towards receiving the commandments. And in the the narrative that God gives the people, the the things that they're to hear, there is a very specific order and the order is everything. God tells, first of all, about his saving acts, and then he calls for a response of obedience, and then there is the promise of blessing. And the order is vital. You cannot reverse the order without completely undermining Christian religion. It's vital to understand Old Testament religion vital to understand the continuity that there is with uh, New Testament saints. These three things, we're going to look at them now. uh, God's saving acts, God's call to obedience, God's promise of blessing. So, the account of God's saving acts begins with the uh, reminder of God's judgment on Egypt. You remember what I did to Egypt. It's kind of um, a hard way to start, isn't it? They've got to bring to mind uh, the way that God thundered against Egypt. The plagues that God brought upon uh, the house of Pharaoh. Uh, When we were looking at them, we we saw that many of the plagues were displaying the, the impotence of the Egyptian gods. They struck at the very core of Egyptian religion. And, and so the Nile, which was uh, a deity, the Nile is turned into blood. Uh, the sun is darkened. And then uh, comes the, the, the final and the climactic plague with the slaying of the firstborn. And Pharaoh has to plead, he has to, to implore Moses to, to leave and take his people with him. And the people leave Egypt uh, in haste, but not in fear. Uh, it's as though they're marching out with banners waving and they leave a great host uh, a mixed multitude the King James Version puts it there were Egyptians and other nationalities with them who have been uh, made envious if we can use that expression again of of, uh, Israel's faith and have joined them to Israel they go to the Red Sea and it's as though their backs are against the wall the thunder of chariots is heard in the distance pharaohs in hot pursuit And then God uh, works out this wonderful victory. He parts the Red Sea. Israel goes through on dry land. And when the Egyptians pursue, the waters collapse over them. And they are overwhelmed. And God gains renown for himself uh, throughout the world, throughout the known world. Now, in all of this, the people are quite... Helpless. Uh, God is the one who takes the initiative. Uh, God exerts his mighty power uh, to upturn this great superpower of the day. For us as Christians, uh, we look back on the judgment on the enemy in the, the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The New Testament portrays the work of Jesus as a work of conflict against Satan and his powers. John tells us, that the, 1 John 3, verse 8, the reason that the Son of God was revealed was to destroy the devil's work. That's why Jesus came. He came to destroy the devil's work. Colossians 2, 14 and 15, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. God's saving acts begin with the defeat of his and our enemy through the cross of Jesus Christ. Remember what I did to Egypt. Remember how I carried you, secondly, on eagles' wings. Once again, God's deliverance is portrayed as a great and mighty work in which he is the one who takes the initiative. I carried you on eagles' wings. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? There's a picture of both power and compassion in this picture. I don't know if if any of you saw the the BBC um, nature program that was on. I think it might have been couple of years ago um, it was about the the cycle of, of nature in the highlands, Scotland's wild heart it was called, Ewan McGregor was narrating the programme and there was wonderful footage of um, ospreys and, and also golden eagles and the thing about the golden eagle is that the, the young are in the nest for a hundred days uh, before they're ready to fly and then the, the eagle will will we'll get the, the young eaglet started and the eaglet will begin to flap uh, her wings. And if she's not doing well, the eagle will swoop underneath and will we'll catch the eagle before uh, things go bad. And this, this wonderful picture of the Lord, as it were, swooping like a great eagle under his uh, offspring, if you like, Israel, and bearing her, uh, bearing her to his destination, Israel, the infant nation, could not fly. She was helpless. God carried her. And then uh, God brought them to Himself. God led them to His holy mountain where they would worship God and be taught by God and to commit to God in a covenant relationship. The Exodus wasn't simply about getting out of Egypt. The Exodus was about getting to the mountain. The Exodus was about coming into a, a worshiping relationship with God. Think about some of the ways that uh, we we give testimony uh, when we have uh, Christians uh, sharing how they were uh, they've been saved. Very often, there's a, a long time spent recounting all of the, the kind of gloom and doom of the the bad old days, and then we've got the. How it was we became a Christian, and then it seems that nothing really happened after that. (laughs) And that really sells short the gospel. Because salvation is unto a new and living relationship with God, in which we're making fresh discoveries of the glory and the grace of God in Jesus Christ. God drew Israel to Himself. Absolutely vital friends, that we notice that it God's God-saving acts which are mentioned first. And only then do we come to God's call for obedience. God declares that he has redeemed Israel and brought them near, and now he calls them to obey. And the order is absolutely vital. We love because he first loved us. We obey Because we are accepted, we never obey in order to be accepted. That's a reversal of the gospel. It's religion, it's legalism, it's not gospel. And so, after he's reminded the people that they've been saved, he speaks about how they're to live in that saved relationship. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, God is demanding full and glad obedience to his covenant law. God's covenant is his unbreakable promise to his people. God spoke his covenant first to Abraham, promising land and a people. To keep that promise, God took his people out of Egypt, uh, defeated their enemies, and thus far, keeping the covenant has meant uh, faith, It's meant believing in the promises of God. Now, God speaks of the requirement to obey as their glad response. Sometimes we speak of, uh, we explain covenant in terms of, of marriage, because marriage is uh, covenantal in many respects. You know, There's a covenant sign, uh, there's the, the legal uh, setting of witnesses and signing a register and so on. Uh, there's the commitment that's made in the covenant of marriage, but the covenant that God has in the covenant of grace is, is different from marriage because marriage is a covenant between equals, but we are not in a covenant of equals when it comes to, to the covenant of grace. Uh, he is the great king, we are his people, and so he has a right, a proper right, uh, to say, This is the way you walk in it. He gives us his commandments to obey. Notice again the order. If, if God had said, uh, you must obey me fully, uh, and if you obey me and keep my covenant, then I'll defeat your enemies and I'll bring you out of Egypt. That would be the logic of, the, of reversing the order. Now, if that had been the, the, the order, Israel would, of course, still have been in Egypt. They would still have been in a place of, of bondage and slavery. But God redeemed them first and then gave them uh, his covenant commandments. Saving acts, requirement for obedience, and then thirdly, the promise of blessings. First comes God's act of saving, second, response of covenant obedience, third, blessings of fellowship with God. In that order, an irreversible order. What are the blessings? Well, first, out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. I love the expression. And it uh, translates, it's a, a kind of a lovely Hebrew word. Sigula is what is, is uh, behind this. And it was the, the personal property of a monarch. So uh, a king, an emperor, could have a whole lot of estates by virtue of being the king but then there would be those things which were uh, actually his peculiar his proper private possession. In contemporary terms, uh, our Queen has uh, a revenue which comes from the Crown Estates. Okay? So a large swathes of, 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 of property throughout Britain, uh, Regent Street and uh, lots of farmland and so on. And uh, the revenue from that goes to a, a grant to the Queen. But as well as, as this uh, income that she has, this wealth that she has, by virtue of being the monarch, she also has uh, a private treasure. Uh, it's estimated that she has £110 million pounds in stocks and shares. Uh, there are some of the properties which belong to uh, the Queen. Sandringham and Balmoral uh, belong as our own private uh, possession. And when you know that, it's interesting that you can understand something of the affection that the monarchy have had for Balmoral. God is saying, You're my sigula, you're my treasured possession. You're really special to me. Even although all the earth is mine, you're my special possession beautiful, beautiful concept. Israel will have that blessing of being God's special possession. Israel will be a kingdom of priests. There's probably two senses here. There's a national sense in which uh, she'll be a light to the world. She'll minister to the world. In that picture Isaiah has in chapter 2 of all the peoples coming up to Mount Zion, Israel will be that light in the hill. But also, individually, people will be priests to God. Yes, the Levites will will have that special role of ministering in the temple and of being priests. But Israel will have that unique privilege among the nations of, of God speaking to them. They will have access to him in a way that the others do not. And Israel will be a holy nation. She will be a people who are so distinctive that others will see the difference. That was always the intention that they would be provoked to envy. Now, all well, this might sound fine. And we've been hammering away that uh, the obedience does not earn the acceptance or the blessing. lets once saved by works. Didn't take the gospel to introduce salvation by faith alone. It's been there. covenant of grace has been there in the Old Testament. But I guess you might be looking at uh, verse 5 and looking at a little word in verse 5, if, and wondering how that works out. If, now, if you obey me and fully and keep my commandment, Surely, having made it clear to Israel that they have been saved by grace and not by works, God isn't turning that on its head now and introducing a conditionality into it. What's the if there for? And here we need to get it right because there are loads of wrong-headed notions around about how Christians relate to the law. Here's four wrong ones. <clears throat> okay, this is all bad theology we're going into now. Bear that in mind. The first one is that people say that uh, you have to be saved by works. You keep the law, and that makes you right with God. Now, strictly speaking, no Christian says that because uh, that is a, a, a non-Christian way of looking at things. Uh, it's totally wrong, uh, we are not saved by works. But it's a strongly held feeling and it colours our, our thinking, even as Christians, it can creep into our thinking that works earn our acceptance. Then there are those who say, you're saved by faith, but it's faith plus works. And then in this case, it will be faith plus keeping the covenant saves you. This is a kind of Roman Catholic variant on it all. There are others who say, thirdly, uh, you're saved by faith, But you can lose your salvation if you don't remain obedient. Faith gets you in, but obedience to the commandments keeps you in. That's wrong as well. And then there's the fourth wrong answer. It's amazing how imaginative people can be in in coming up with wrong ideas about how we relate to the law. The fourth one is that uh, new covenant people, Christians, uh, we've got the spirit, and therefore the commandments don't have anything to do with us. We're simply led to do what's right by the spirit. Wrong answer. Number four. What's the reason for the if-then in verse five? Well, it's pointing forward to the blessings rather than back to the status. So in God's world, there are responsibilities that come with being in his covenant, and these responsibilities are blessings, and his blessings are responsibilities. Here's what uh, Professor John Murray writes about this verse. Uh, he says, Exodus 19, verse 5, does not state, if you will obey my voice and accept the terms stipulated, then I will make my covenant with you. doesn't say that. What it says is, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure to me. The covenant is conceived as dispensed, as in operation, and as constituting a certain relation in the keeping of it and in obeying God's voice. The covenant is presupposed in the keeping of it. Undoubtedly, he says, there's a conditional feature in the words, if you will hear my voice and keep my covenant. But what's conditioned on obedience and keeping of the covenant is the enjoyment of the blessing which the covenant contemplates. Now, it it could be put simpler than Professor Murray puts it that way. And uh, we could simply go with the hymn that says Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. That's what... That's good covenant theology. That's what's being said here. Uh, So if we want to know the blessings, then we'll keep the covenant law. Uh, And it's important to get this right. People... The reason very often that that people throw out the law of God, uh, dispense with the idea of keeping the commandments, is because at one time they lived as legalists, but they didn't know why they were keeping the law. Have you noticed that? Some people go from one extreme to the other. Because at one time they were... Zealously trying to keep all the commandments in an external kind of way and they were kind of uh, thought police for everybody else at the same time but they didn't really uh, have a, a heart reason for keeping them and so it came to the point they didn't know why they were doing this so they just threw everything out and from being legalists they became what we call antinomians they came to the point where they just said we're not under the law at all we can do what we feel the Spirit is telling us. Let's go back to the order of grace. And let's reverse it. Because this might help us to see what's being said here. With if. Do you want to live with a felt awareness of the love of God for you in your heart? A felt awareness of being precious in God's sight? Of course you do. Do you want to know that you have a real purposefulness in life? That God has called you to to a usefulness in his service? Of course you do. Such blessings are found in a life of obedience. You don't find these blessings by uh, being careless about the commandments. People who uh, ignore the Sabbath day, who are covetous, uh, who tell lies who have lustful thoughts, don't know the blessings that God confers on those who trust and obey. Hence the importance of keeping the commandments. And how do people keep covenant law? Again, we go back to the first stage. By being amazed by grace by constantly reminding themselves of God's saving acts. By recalling the fact that God has condemned our great foe Satan. He has won a great victory on the cross. He is borne as an eagle's wings and brought us to himself. He has become our father in heaven. We are his children. That is the dynamic for obeying the commandments. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John said, he who loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. There's the order. Saved to obey, to be blessed. And there's no reversing of that order. May God bless to us his precious work. Amen.